Welcome back, friends, to the shuttle pod. Thank you for making us a part of your week and your lives. We are here uh, recording on January 27th, 2021. I think our second podcast of the year. My name is Jared, and I am joined by my friends John Ducek. Hey, how's everyone going? How's everyone doing? <laughs> and then we have a, a VIP with us, a very important Pascal, Tony <laughs> Pascal, uh, founder of trekmovie.com. Tony, welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to have you, Tony. Is this the first time you've been on the shuttle pod? No, no, no. By far not. I think I've been okay. on quite a few times, but it's been okay. a few months at least. Why is it that maybe you don't have as much time to come on this podcast for Trek Movie? Do you have another podcast you might want to promote? <laughs> um, every Friday, uh, my fellow editor and I, Lori Ulster, host the All Access Star Trek podcast, and we talk about what's new in Star Trek, usually new episodes and, of the week and the news of the week. Um, with not without any new episodes, we're covering we're doing interviews and other types of things. So uh, check it out every Friday morning. Uh, I hope everyone does. Okay, well before we get underway, I just wanted to to um, continue our theme from last episode because it was very well received about our top three characters because neither of you were able to be on that show. So I just wanted to ask. If you want to share your top three characters, John, do you, who who in the franchise gets your your gold medal, your silver medal, and your bronze? You know, it's it's a very difficult question, and if you ask me this one day to the next, um, it probably would change. Um, but since you put me on the spot, uh, gold medal will go to Doctor Leonard McCoy. Oh, nice. Bronze medal, excuse me, the silver medal, which would Come in second. Good to know with the Olympics coming up this summer. Um, silver medal would go to Jedzia Dax. Oh, okay. And rounding out the top three, uh, not a not a a regular cast member, but a recurring member um, that was one of the first uh, Star Trek actors that I ever met in my life um, would be Elam Garrick. Oh, great! He was my—he was my one of my favorite too. We we do share that in common, which is I think why we wanted to to tackle this subject together. Um, yeah, G Garrick is a great choice. Uh, he's one of my favorites, although you know, depending on my mood. I mean, I, I wasn't ready for this, so I'm gonna just pick three. You know, today this is my today list. Um, number one has to be Spock. Uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think he had a great arc. Um, he was the most interesting character in the film franchise. I feel Easily. transitioning from the television franchise and, uh, and then obviously into the next film franchise. Cause he kind of had two film franchises. Yep. My second one, I'm going to go with Goldicott. Oh, interesting. Uh, um, Good choice. Whenever he shows up on screen, you pay attention. Um, and, you know, it's a fantastic actor. And his character also had a very interesting arc through DS9. I mean, I could go with all DS9 characters easily. but Oh, uh, I like the direction this conversation is going. Well done. Well spoken, Tony. But, do, you, um, do you guys feel that Goldicott 
and I'm putting you on the spot here. Do you feel that Goldicott is Star Trek's strongest villain? Oh, it's without a doubt. It's not even a question. There's um, no one you can compare him to, right? I mean, Khan was in uh, one episode and one movie. Goldicott, I think, is in more episodes than Jake Sisko yeah. was. We know who Goldicott is. We know his motivations. We know his predilections. We know that he has a thing for Kira. You know, I mean, he, he, we don't know enough about Khan, except Khan is fantastic and was the That's best right. movie villain. But uh, absolutely, I would say Goldicott by far. I, I'm in complete agreement. It's loaded. Do you have a Do you have a favorite Goldicott episode? I, I'm not going to pick one. You know, okay. the, 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 um, so no, I'm not going to say just one. You know, there's, <laughs> you know, it. I think so. it got a little weird towards the end. All the stuff with you the, know, yeah, <laughs> the um, stuff was a little weird in my opinion. Yeah, when he was in occupation, that was all. Those were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um. For my third, I don't know. I'm going to go with um, Bruce Greenwood's Captain Pike in the J.J. Abrams movies. Oh, wow. Interesting. What is it you like uh, about uh, um, about that performance with him specific? What makes it different than some of the other Pikes we've seen? Well, I think it's still the best Pike. Um, and because he's, you know, it, I thought it was just a really creative way to reintroduce the character he's very different than the original pike because obviously it's a different timeline um but he's both a great captain and a great mentor to Mm -hmm. james t kirk um and you know it's like it's funny i mean i love the jj movie but the whole time i'm like you know pike is the only guy there who really knows what he's doing it's just all these bunch of kids and then Pike is really the only one who's speaking rationally in those movies, it seems. Um, so, I don't know. I just, you know, I'm a big fan. So, the, I mean, he's also he, the, sorry, he's also the audience's introduction to, to Starfleet and, and the Federation, really. Yeah. Um, and, and I always like that aspect. And Bruce Greenwood has an incredible gravitas in the role. Um, and, you know, I, I like his arc over, over the two films that he was in, um, but I can't help but but want more um, from a Bruce Greenwood Pike. Yeah, it was heartbreaking for him to get axed, but uh, I understand why they did it. Um, you know, he, he, I would say he's a wild card. If you ask me next week, I'll have a different top three, and he's probably not in it. But, you know, he, he caught me off guard, so I threw you a curveball there. Hey, well done. Uh, tit for tat. Every time you come on, then we'll ask you who your wild card is of the week. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you for, for sharing that, gentlemen. So so now, now um, to get to the main topic, though, we are going to do a deep dive into the subject of Section 31. What is it? Was it? Is it about Section 31 that it's so compelling that it keeps getting brought back so much? What, John, what do you think? You know, I, I think uh, if, if you if you go back to uh, the reason it was created, according to Iris Stephen Bear, um, for the Deep Space Nine episode Inquisition in the sixth season, um, they had played around earlier in the series um, through looking at uh, looking through the lens of various different actors like Michael Eddington um, and uh, uh, Cisco's. Uh, captain friend who joined the maquis whose name's escaping me um cal hudson season cal hudson and um it, it really it, it goes to show that look you know it's it's not all 
it's not all uh, utopia when it comes to the Federation and Starfleet itself. And they explored this a little bit in um, in uh, the two-parter based on Earth, um, uh, Homefront and Paradise Lost, uh, mm-hmm. where you know you do have uh, people that go through go to extraordinary measures to protect Paradise uh, to lift a line from that episode. Um, and I, I think I think that one thing that Deep Space Nine did very well is it stayed in the great area quite a bit you know rather than um draw things in strict black and white um it played around in that area and i think one reason that section 31 has uh has become so interesting is that for one it sparks a huge debate among fans uh i remember when inquisition first came out and uh, Section 31 was first rolled out, you know, fans hated it. Fans thought, well, you know what? This has nothing to do with Roddenberry's vision. This organization would never exist. And then other fans would say, well, it makes sense. The Romulans have the Tal Shiar. The, the, the Cardassians have the Obsidian Order. Why wouldn't the Federation have something um, sort of tangential to Starfleet intelligence to protect its interests in the in a galaxy full of enemies. And I think yeah, Odo o- o- even it, says that too. Yeah, the, the fact that it sparked that debate in fandom is what I think at its core makes it so interesting as a concept. You know, is this consistent with the values of the Federation? Should the Federation have this organization? We see our characters like Dr. Bashir um, wrestle with this idea. And on the other side, is a bit more pragmatic. Uh, a little bit, some people that look at it in a realist uh, sort of perspective and Mm -hmm. say, look, the Starfleet needs this organization because look at the enemies that they face. Sure. It's like the uh, sort of the Colonel Jessup uh, response to Star Trek. Well, that's the main difference between Section 31 and the Tal Shiar. The The Tal Shiar is the secret police like the Gestapo in that they will ensure internal um security and so if you are someone causing trouble for the romulan senate and you're a romulan the tal shiar will come down on you the section 31 aren't making sure people are not speaking ill of the president of the federation sure they're not the ministry of truth in uh, 1984 yeah and in a way it was a bit of a it's sort of a clever reaction to the Roddenberry box. So they're saying, okay, well, sure, the Federation is utopian and perfect and everyone's fantastic. So therefore, if, if you know, but it's an imperfect galaxy. So the only way to deal with that is to have something that's technically, well, I mean, this is the weird thing is, is it or is it not part of the Federation? But it's a so secret thing that most people don't know about it, part of the Federation. And and it is separate from Starfleet intelligence. I mean, there is a Starfleet intelligence that exists within the command structure, and this thing is completely independent. At least that was how it was in the Berman era. Right. The, Ber- the Berman version is the definitely, this is the black ops off the books, but it's still somehow with, because 
the whole point of Section 31 is it cites the Federation Charter as its proof of existence, right? Yeah. So well, it the, is... the Star- Starfleet Charter, actually, because it, it's, uh, it predates the Federation. Yeah, right. But it's the point being that it is, you know, authorized by the Charter and yet not part of. It's, 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 it's in, you know, it is in the ultimate gray area, right? So it isn't just like um, Blackwater or some kind of private mm-hmm. organization just doing stuff because they feel like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are always, I think in the ultimate version of this, there are always people within the Federation, a secret cabal within the Federation, mm-hmm. and within Starfleet specifically, that are also section 31 secretly and uh so it is quasi official but certainly not on an org chart you know the president of the federation shouldn't be able to pick up the phone and say get me the head of section 31 yeah it's so secret that it doesn't even have a headquarters as sloan says in one episode and and it's it's i think that that secrecy uh lends to some of the appeal of section 31 uh especially when it was first introduced um because you know sloan arrives on we'll get into this a little bit later but sloan um you know magnificent character played by william zadler um and i wish we got to see more of him um but only three episodes worth um but he's he's introduced initially um as the deputy director of internal affairs within starfleet intelligence which turns out to be, you know, a holographic simulation to test Bashir's loyalty and evaluate him for recruitment. Um, but then you see uh, in, the, in the second episode, uh, Inter Arma Enem Sednenligs, um, any Latin speakers out there? It is not my first or second or third language. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but you see that Admiral Ross knows about it. And Admiral Ross, you know, embarks upon a mission that goes ahead and... Uh, uh, utilizes Section 31. Um, so I, I think it's something where certain admirals know about it, um, but it's sort of like they're brought in on a need-to-know basis. Um, it, it's tangentially related to Starfleet intelligence. I'm sure its reports, you know, flow through um, the uh, bureaucracy of Starfleet, but in terms of how they collect their information, how they go ahead and carry out their covert operations no one knows and no one knows the people that are involved in it and i I thought that deep space nine's playing with the idea of okay is section 31 a small organization is it a larger organization are we only seeing sort of the iceberg poking out of the water and there's so much more to it or is it really just sloan and a few other people and and never really resolved that question i thought that was one thing that made it all more intriguing yep and then by the time you get to Discovery, they have uh, – they're so well-developed, they have their own branding and, and uh, marketing materials that – what's his name? That Vox throws around like he's giving out swag at a conference. Yeah. <laughs> they, have, you know, we, they have badges. We, exactly. We, we, yeah, exactly. I was going to bring that up, Tony. You know, we've got the second episode of Discovery uh, where you have black badges all over, all over the ship and nothing ever happens with that. Well, you know, I, I, the, the, the black badges we saw on Discovery aren't the, I don't think they're actually the same badges that they used for Section 31. Um, I think that was just kind of a random thing they had in Episode 3 that uh, Akiva put in and they forgot about it. I, I don't, I'm not sure that they're supposed to be the same thing, but 
I'm sure some eagle-eyed persons can say they are the same. I've actually got one of these badges on my desk here right now. They're, Do they're you? They're kind of cool. Yeah. Huh. Not, 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 a, not a real one. The uh, QMX replica. The, oh, okay. the big question is when it comes to the marketing for it, what do they call it? In-universe or out-of-universe? No, just uh, out-of-universe. I'm, I'm curious. Oh, okay. Is it just a, a Starfleet Black Delta? or? I think uh, QMX called them Section 31. Interesting. And we know, we know uh, that was approved by CBS. <laughs> so, um, no, we'll just chalk it up to one of those things, much like, you know, the, the captain uh, who's waiting to be picked up on Falcon in Discovery that sort of got lost. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, because Google is our friend, um, the one that was produced by QMX is actually called Star Trek Discovery Black Badge. Ah, okay. Okay. But, oh, it's but... But the, the the description of it headline is section thirty one question mark. So, <laughs> so at, at least CBS is a little more discreet than the guys on <laughs> on Discovery are. Yeah, I mean, although you know, the, I mean, you also saw this on Lower Decks. Boimler would talk about Section 31 openly. So this notion of do people know about it? How many people know about it? Is it part of Starfleet? Because I mean, Cornwell in Discovery seemed to kind of be in charge of it for some reason, or at least giving orders to um, Section 31. They had their own ship. So it was definitely a diff- whole... Di- it was much more part of Starfleet in d- the discovery era i guess is what they're saying and it got more i mean i guess my my headcanon is this that after the events of season two of discovery section 31 goes entirely underground and oh okay that is what exists through the rest of the 23rd century into the kirk era and on into tng era where it's almost become forgotten Except for Boimler. Somehow, <laughs> somehow Boimler knows about them. <laughs> I, I think I, to talk about, you know, uh, the ingredients for a good Section 31 story, you know, we talked about it a couple weeks ago in December um, in terms of a good social commentary story. Um, and really, this is, this is a Star Trek commentary um, when it comes to Section 31 when it's first introduced in Deep Space Nine, um, you know to what lengths should the Federation go to protect itself? And how do you, how do you go ahead and weigh those with the values of the Federation? And we see, you know, uh, the audience uh, and perhaps Roddenberry's vision represented um, in Dr. Bashir's reaction to the existence of Section 31. He might be so intrigued by it given his his interest in in uh, you know hollow suite uh, spy um, programs and his fascination sure. with everything Our that Garrick sure. used to do. Yeah, his fascination with everything Garrick used to do for the Obsidian Order, um, and uh, you know it, it's it it poses an interesting moral question, and and I think the way that we should you know, think about it and evaluate it in terms of, of this episode of the shuttle pod is, um, 
is, is Section 31 being used to sort of explore something within the Star Trek universe and ask very deep questions about uh, the Federation? Um, or is it sort of getting beyond that and just becoming this cookie cutter villain type thing? Well, I think it, it started certainly as a way to question the Federation and specifically it was created as something to expand on the character of Bashir. Cause you know, back in the TNG era, they would do, they would do, okay, so we're now we're going to do a Bashir episode and Bashir's a despise. So why don't we recruit him into a spy agency? And, you know, it seemed like a fun thing to do. And I think by discovery era, they're no longer structuring the show that way. And I think they're doing it more because, it's just, you know, ooh, you know, we could do espionage stuff and spy stuff and dark stuff. And it's and it's definitely a way to use this mirror universe character, um, which we haven't even talked about, which is George O. Um, and so I think it was more a vehicle for her. So sometimes I think the writers aren't thinking about these big moral questions. They're thinking about how do we, you know, what story elements do we use for particular characters? Um, and then the kind of cool moral questions come later. Right. What's, in, what's interesting is that um, I think Ira Bear said that, you know, they stumbled upon the idea of section 31 relatively late into the series. Of course, season six is the first um, time we get Inquisition and um, and then season seven for the, the last two DS9 section 31 episodes. And there probably would have been more um, had they come up with the idea earlier in the series um, or if they could work around William Sadler's um, schedule. Um, and, and I'm of the opinion, this may be controversial given how much section 31 we have now spread across into darkness and of course discovery and an upcoming television series. Um, I'm of the opinion that uh, less is better, um, especially with the concept like section 31. Um, I, I very much like uh, Tony, you and I are sort of in the same vein. We, we like our good spy uh, films. We like uh, spy television shows. We like when they're done well. And I feel that, you know, Inquisition and Inter Arma um, were two just incredibly good episodes. And I, I feel like even Enterprise with Affliction and Malcolm's history with Section 31 also dealt with it pretty well. Um, but the, the more you have with something that's sort of unrelated to characters in the show, um, I feel like it becomes a little too much. I sort of feel the same way about the mirror universe um, mm. and, and a number of other things that have been, I feel like overused in Star Trek. Well, um, I think, I think the Borg fits in that category where I, yeah, I, I agree with you. TNG used them to a great amount. Deep Space Nine just used them in the flashback of the very first scene, of the very first episode. Then they said, we're not going to do this. That's the TNG people. That's theirs. And then Voyager just said, Hey, let's do uh, 375 different episodes about the Borg. And I think that um, was just overkill. So, so beyond, beyond the sort of the, the overarching idea of section 31, um, do any, do any particular episodes or stories stick out to you guys, um, either Deep Space Nine, Enterprise, or Discovery, 
as as being really good for you. So you I'm going to be honest, my knowledge of enterprises... Oh, sorry? What's that, Tony? I was going to say, you're talking specifically about the episodes that included Section 31 or ones we think should have included Section 31? Oh, no. Uh, ones that ones that definitely included Section 31. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, my favorite is the one with the Latin name because it's, it's, it's a, you know, full-on spy story. It's, it's, it's got, you know, it's, it, it's like a James Bond story, unlike, you know, our man Bashir, you know, it's got, you know, uh, diplomats and uh, the reception and, you know, an assassination pots plot and a double cross. So, you know, for fans of thrillers, espionage stories, it's kind of got everything that you want. Um, and as well as those kind of moral questions about, is this the right thing to do? And even Bashir's kind of questions it himself in the episode. So that's my favorite of the DS, the three DS nine stories. So I agree. I agree. Yeah. It, it also has a great line where Sloan and Bashir are going back and forth and Sloan just says to him, I'm just going to read from the script. Let's make a deal, doctor. I'll spare you the ends, justify the mean speech. And you spare me the, we must do what's right speech. You and I are not going to see eye to eye on this subject. So I suggest we stop discussing it. I just love that. Like they say, okay, we can have our typical Star Trek, we must, but we must not speech, but we're not going to do that. And I just yeah. love the way Sloan cuts uh, Bashir's legs out from under him with that. I also, I like how alone Julian feels in that episode because he's on this different ship. He's not with any of his friends. He goes to uh, uh, um, the Admiral um, and he's worried the Admiral's not on his side. He's on Romulus. It's like, uh, what do I do now? So I, I just, everything about this episode works. I, I think I think there's one thing the episode misses is oh, that it. It, it doesn't deal with Dr. Bashir's, the consequences of Dr. Bashir recruiting a Romulan senator to go ahead and attempt to extract section, oh, excuse me, um, the Tal Shiar's files. And she ends up getting put on trial, and this is the whole play, um, getting put on trial and uh, accused of treason. And she's likely going to get herself killed. And so Bashir is on the soapbox about, you know, what Adam Ross was doing, what Starfleet is doing, and the relationship with Section 31. Um, but there's really, it lacks that bit of introspection from Bashir to say, you know, I got really tied up in this or tangled up in this this thing that I was doing. And, you know, it cost a, it cost a good woman her life. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, that's true. They do just kind of turn that page and move on pretty quickly, don't they? They do, and and, and I, I'm sort of uh, riffing a little bit from Ira Bear because uh, this is a, a Ronald D. Moore script, um, and and Ira Bear said, yeah, it was good, but it could have been better, um, and I, I, I agree with him there. You know, I think I think Bashir does make a lot of really good points, and we need sort of that point of view hitting back at Admiral Ross. We also need Admiral Ross's point of view because up until that point, you know. Bashir turned to Cisco and Odo, and Cisco basically said, "Hey, if they come recruit you again, go for it, um, and, and see what you can learn about it." And now you have Admiral Ross, who's who's been our our trusty, like good admiral, you know, a a, a rarity in Star Trek, um, who who has been with us through the whole Dominion War, um, taking some questionable actions, um, and 
it's interesting. Um, so I, 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 I very much love the episode. I love the, the spy craft in the episode. I think that, I think that in, in my mind to make an interesting section 31 series, if we're going to delve into it even more, um, it has to tackle those big moral issues facing the Federation. And really in, in this episode into Arma, it was about, well, Hey, you know, we have, we have recruited the head of the Tal Shiar and we want to get him next to the Romulan Praetor because our, our goal as an intelligence gathering organization at Starfleet is to look beyond the Dominion war and to think about what the what Romulans are going to do next, because they're yeah. going to emerge from this very powerful. Well, they're, they're more than an intelligence gathering. They are, they are trying to manipulate galactic politics, obviously. Exactly. That they're trying to, you know, that's where it goes, goes from, uh, you know, active or passive intelligence gathering to covert operations where you have, uh, you know, them going ahead and getting a, the the prime candidates to be elevated to the committee that will sit next to the praetor out of the way so that um so that section 31's asset is there and then you have of course the the their involvement in, in the big season seven uh storyline which is the the uh disease affecting the uh founders and the fact that section 31 went ahead and created this you know, and, and arguably not a bad move, right? I mean, the founders were a, an existential threat to the Federation, yep. and uh, so you 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 go to war with the troops you have, and their troop was uh, sneaking something via Odo. Yeah, and I I think you know I think maybe perhaps we can all and maybe we can disagree on this. You know, I I agree with what. Uh, Admiral Ross and Section Thirty One were doing to. I mean, can you imagine having having the head of the Tal Shiar as an asset? That's like during the Cold War, the CIA recruits the head of the KGB. Yeah, yeah, and then they're going to get a, a promotion to even higher position on, uh, in Moscow. Exactly. That is that is a golden asset, and you know, I think I think in my in my opinion, um, I I would probably support doing whatever you can to keep that asset in play. Um, sure. And I think also um, the, the plot of that episode um, where Bashir is, you know, brought in to see if he's suffering from Tuvin syndrome um, and how many years he has left. And, and that is sort of the guise that section 31 wants him to be involved in this mission. Um, but I think it's also, cause it's, it's not, you know, some sort of lie. He actually does have it. And, you know, if you were an organization like Section 31 or Starfleet Intelligence, um, you want to know how much you should risk for someone like this. If he's going to go ahead and, you know, he's exhibiting symptoms already and he's going to be out of his job in the next five years, are you going to risk going to Romulus and, and pulling off this plot? You know, I don't, I don't quite think so. Um, but given that, you know, given that he's likely going to be in the job for a lot longer, um, it, it justifies what they do a little bit more. You understand why they go to the lengths that they do. Right, exactly. Okay, so can we talk a little bit about the Enterprise stuff? But before we leave that, oh, sure. um, 
if you read the books, which are not canon, obviously, Admiral Ross does pay a price for all these shenanigans. Um, oh, does he? Yeah. So, and eventually, Section Thirty-One kind of gets exposed, and it's a big scandal. I won't do too many spoilers for those who still want to read the books, but there is a whole extensive storyline involving Bashir and Section Thirty-One and Ross and all sorts of stuff. Interesting. And, and to, my, to my understanding, too, the books, uh, a number of books go back and even to the Enterprise incident in TOS and attribute Section 31's involvement there and to a number of um, other key sort of espionage type related um, events that we've seen over Star Trek. Yeah, it's easy to retcon Section 31 into into all sorts of moments, and, and they definitely do that. You know, and you were mentioning, you know, what's the episode Paradise Lost or whatever, the coup on Earth. You could only, yeah. you know, ha- there's no way that Section 31 wasn't involved in some way, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, it's it's easy to apply them to these things, even though, you know, it was never said on screen. Your head canon can imagine it easily. So you wanted to talk about Enterprise. I have a very limited v- Enterprise vocabulary. So can you tell me a little bit more about, to sort of tickle my watching bone, uh, about the stuff they do in Enterprise and with Malcolm? Sure. Um, You know, I I found this interesting, um, is that uh, in season season four, um, Affliction, so it's the episode right after uh, the augments, um, it's basically explaining in-universe why the Klingons no longer have their ridges. Um, but Phlox is kidnapped from Earth, and he is transported to a, uh, a Klingon base where um, they're doing uh, experiments into this disease, this virus um, that's afflicting the Klingon Empire. And uh, what's revealed in in that episode is that Malcolm before he came aboard Enterprise, um, had a relationship with Section 31. And they're not outright named in the episode, but you look at uh, his handler's um, costume, it's exactly mm. like Sloan's. Um, when when Malcolm finally goes ahead and, and tells Archer, because basically what he has to do is he has to sort of cover up Phlox's um, disappearance because Section 31 has sort of struck a deal with the Klingons um, to go ahead and help them because they think that there will be benefit for Starfleet and Earth um, down the road. And uh, so so Malcolm has to, you know, ignore the breadcrumbs that could lead them to where Phlox is and turn over and start lying about these things. And that places him in an in interesting dilemma um, between serving Starfleet and Section 31, which clearly he's, he's had experience with in the past, and being loyal to his captain. And that's re- that, I think that's really the great use of Section 31 here. I, I always liked Malcolm as a character, and Malcolm is obviously an old-school guy, a king-and-country kind of guy, and he's forced into this impossible situation of divided loyalty um you know the what's his name i forget his handler you know tries to tell him that he has a greater loyalty to the section which is you know implied section 31 before he was 
even on board. And so therefore he has a higher loyalty to them. And, you know, it tears Malcolm apart. And it's, I, I think it's definitely one of the better Malcolm episodes or, or actually two episodes, uh, this and divergence, um, you know, he ends up in the brig, uh, because Archer eventually figures out, you know, something's going wrong. He, Malcolm isn't this incompetent. Um, and he eventually comes clean. But, you know, I, I, I you know, a lot of people are like, uh, Section 31, but I, I liked it. I thought it was a clever use of Section 31. They were very subtle about how they never actually say Section 31, which I thought maybe was a little too clever. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and, this is not they're not really getting into the big moral issues. It's more using it to um, ex- to reveal more about Malcolm as a character. Who I Which thought is more interesting. It's a good good decision. Yeah, and 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 he was always an underutilized character. Um, and I, I guess everyone on that show is an underutilized character, <laughs> um, except Porthos. <laughs> we had the exact right amount of Porthos. <laughs> Right, you know we are celebrating the 20th year of Enterprise. And oh my probably... gosh! Are you? Oh wow! Wow! Yeah, amazing. There it is. There it is. Um, and so, not yet officially because it debuted in September. September. Yeah. But uh, this is the 20th anniversary year, and we should probably do some more looking at Enterprise, um, which was the end of the Berman era. So. Yeah. True. Definitely, and, and I I found through just you know just as a side on Enterprise, um, you know I I wasn't enjoying it while it was airing, but um, when I I sat down and showed it to my wife for the first time after probably like fifteen years or so, uh, now probably ten years, um, I enjoyed it a lot more um, than I did the first time. I appreciated it a lot more, and I, I think um, I think that it's something that fans will uh, come around to. And it's it's interesting to, to also sort of hold that lens up to just how fans react to Star Trek as as a, a huge tangent here, um, because we have uh, a lot of the fan base that you know um, they aren't fans of Discovery, and I just wonder if you know 10, 15 years down the line uh, with subsequent re- rewatches and seeing you know how they handle the entire show. Um, what people will think of discovery and how that will age. Well, I think one thing about discovery is it's a show meant to be binged, but doled out one week at a time. And I think you could immediately enjoy the show more if you binge watch it over a couple of weeks, a season at a time. And uh, because a lot of stuff that they do really pays off in later episodes and you'd often hear the writers saying well we did it this way because we're setting something up here and we're paying it off here but when that's you know spread out especially season one where they broke it into two halves um you you kind of forget that and uh so i already think um you could get the kind of what you're talking about of a more appreciative view by doing a binge watch of um of the show so to I, I think you know uh, I think affliction is a good representation of what Section Thirty One was um, in the Enterprise era. So something that's very much behind the scenes. Um, you know I think Harris is his name, who's who's Malcolm's um, handler yeah. in Section Thirty One. Um, you know in in the follow up episode Divergence, you know basically points out 
this is where they establish, you know, uh, that it comes from the Starfleet Charter when he's talking with Archer. Um, but sort of Section 31 is at the background of the the uh, Klingon virus um, arc of episodes. And, and, and so I, I sort of like that, that they weren't um, the complete focus of things, um, but they were sort of orchestrating things behind the scenes. And of course, um, as you said, Tony, um, it gave us a really good Malcolm uh, arc um, there. Uh, turning to turning to Discovery, um, and, and well, there really... they were in two more episodes, but I would say even more so, they were kind of not really part of those stories. They were just used to kind of deliver a piece of information, and that exactly was it. exactly that 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 was more or less my point. Is is sort of you know, um, Enterprise they they sort of dangled section 31 out um in front of us and uh dealt with it through one character's uh, arc and they didn't they didn't stay focused on it and i think that that was a good thing um i i i think that um i think where discovery sort of falls off the rails a little bit when it comes to section 31 is that um for uh, number one, Section Thirty-One becomes something much bigger than it ever was in any other Star Trek series, and, mm-hmm. and bigger than the concept uh, that it was. You know, it has fleets of dozens of ships. It has its own base, um, and apparently, every every uh, admiral in Starfleet is uh, submitting their reports to Section Thirty-One and then to Control. Um, to go ahead and come up with this massive sort of strategy as to what's going on. And that's, that's really where Section 31 um, is, is set up more as a villain sort of before we understand the full scope of control. Um, am, I, am I right there? Yeah, that pretty much lays it out. It, it's definitely different than it was. I mean, that's why you have to rethink you have to imagine that to make it all fit if you really want to make it all fit um you have to imagine that section 31 changed dramatically after the events of season two because the way it's portrayed in season two it's it's an open part of starfleet that handles strategic analysis um and other things with their own assets etc so you know that in no way fits with what we learn about them later um, or, or any kind of reasonable, a government's reasonable handling of an intelligence agency. I mean, the CIA does not have battleships. The intelligence reports to the civilian government, and the civilian government decides if they want to deploy um, uh, military assets to deal with the problem that the intelligence community reports to them. They even talk about it in Deep Space Nine with the, uh, obs- the Obsidian Order is explicitly forbidden from having their own ships, Right. And so it's so bonkers the decisions they made with with Discovery in so many ways. That, that's a good point, Jared. Um, you know, one thing I liked about the in- initial introduction of Section Thirty One is that we sort of never really got a conception of what the organization was, how big it was, how it operated. Sloan would just sort of appear on Deep Space Nine and then disappear. No one could track his transporter signature. Um, I imagine that he was beaming to and from a ship, but I don't think that was some sort of 
high-tech Federation or Starfleet-looking ship. I think it was something very run-of-the-mill that would go unnoticed and might have some advanced technology um, inside of it. But uh, this idea of a fleet, you know, that's something that that really, really turned me off from it um, and, and elevating yeah. sort of Section 31 um, to this sort of cloak, from, from a cloak and dagger type organization operating in the background. Um, and, and, and the one thing that I think is, 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 is good to point out is that the reason that they, they were, that they, they were kept arm's length from Starfleet intelligence and Starfleet itself was for deniability purposes. Mm. Um, and, and then, and then you sort of have them integrated in Starfleet, um, in discovery. Um, and, and that, that to me, I, I don't, I don't want section 31, I think, to be a villain for just a villain's sake. Um, I, I, I tend to have liked the stories of, of sort of espionage and subterfuge that were told in Deep Space Nine and Enterprise concerning section 31. Um, and I, I really didn't get a, a, a sense that um, Discovery ever wanted to sort of uh, portray the organization um, in a very similar light. Well, they, they, they are just a different type of organization and, you know, they are not a secret organization, but they are a covert organization. If that can be parsed, um, they have assets, but, you know, covert organizations have assets. The NSA has lots of assets. They don't have ships per se, but they have satellites and other assets. And, you know, if you are an intelligence gathering organization, you would, you know, for a galaxy, you would have to have interstellar cloaked capability to go around and observe and analyze. I think what was weird was the offensive capability of these ships. Yeah. And, uh, but to have a bunch of little cloaked ships that run around the galaxy. Yeah, that's fine. That makes sense because they need to get around and see what's going on on the Klingon border and the Romulans and, you know, and, and see, see what other people are doing. So of course they would have assets. Um, but uh, I, they were portraying a entirely different thing. They were going for a different thing, yeah. and it didn't fit. But th- they weren't really trying to make it fit. Um, and you know, the end of season one had all sorts of you know fixes going on. You know, they had to erase the spore drive from existence, and they had to do all sorts of things. And one of the things they were probably they were implying they were doing is changing section thirty one. So they're saying, yeah. Things were different, you know, but now things are going to go back to the way they were. Um, but, you know, I, I think the question is, did they work in that season for what they were? So stop trying to fit them in. Say, you know, I don't like this because it didn't, it wasn't like it was on Deep Space Nine. The question is, as it was portrayed, was it an interesting story element? I mean, the, the major story, el- they were kind of doing two things. One is, they wanted to tell the Frankenstein story of over-reliance on technology um, and how that could come back to bite you on the ass. And they wanted to have a character story for George O because they want Michelle Yeoh to be part of the show and they didn't know what else to do with her. And Section 31 was the solution to both of those. Mm. Um, I think for the Frankenstein story, you know, it's kind of, we've seen this before. It was okay, but you know, not that exciting. Um, but I, I did not like 
what they did with Giorgio in season two. And they kind of tried to, and we could, you know, this is a whole other conversation, but they kind of started backtracking on her in season three because they realized they needed to make her redeemable. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, cause you know, section 31 didn't help her redemption arc because she ended up being, you know, even more sinister and more, <laughs> um, mush mustache twirly and, and almost sadistic. Um, and, uh, she never really fit in with section 31 anyway. She didn't, um, she didn't seem to believe in what they believed in, in and she was always doing her own thing anyway. So I'm not sure it worked. And, and so I guess the big question is they keep on talking about a section 31 show. I'm convinced it's not, that's kind of a placeholder name per se. Yeah, I'm not sure it, it is, but if it is section 31, it's not going to be what we saw in season two. It's going to be something different. That, that's one thing I wanted to ask you, Tony, um, given given your immense knowledge of the state of the franchise and, and what's what's going on right now. Um, you know, it was always portrayed going back years um, that it would be a Section 31 show. And I always sort of felt, well, no, it's going to be a Georgia show. And, and uh, if she fits into Section 31, that's what it's going to be. And, and I, what, what do you understand um, at present in terms of where the development of the show is at and what it might tackle? There might not be that much information out there in terms of that. Well, there isn't that much information. I mean, we, we know that after her character was killed off in season one, and I'm talking about Michelle Yeoh, the Giorgio 1.0, um, Michelle Yeoh went to Alex Kurtzman and says, I don't want this to be the end. I want to, I want to come back. I, I, I love being part of Star Trek. I love what it says about, um, you know, an, an Asian woman being in command and, and she was just having too much fun. And of course they loved the idea of being in the Michelle Yeoh business because she's an international star. It helps. Yeah. The, it helps the brand in Asia where it doesn't do well. Um, so everyone kind of agreed. Yeah. Let's do more Michelle Yeoh. And then they decided, well, the way to bring her back is the mirror universe. Cause that's an easy, you know, how do you create a copy of someone and they could have done you know, transporter copy or, but they already had the mirror universe storyline because they always knew that um, what's his name uh, Lorca was mirror um, from the beginning so it fit into that and to give her something to do in season two they're like oh let's you know put her in section 31 because that you know that's a dark sinister thing and she's from the mirror universe so um, but I, I feel like they ever since they announced the show because like they announced the show. They knew she was part of Section 31, so it became a Section 31 show. But it has always been a Michelle Yeoh show and a Giorgio show, as you said. And I think they really have gone through a lot of iterations on what it is. And um, let's face it, there is a reason why Strange New Worlds is going into production in probably a month. Um, and the Section 31 show has yet to get a full season order and is only considered quote in development as opposed to, you know, and Paramount plus, you know, are now running new promotions with Anson Mount and Ethan Peck climbing the mountain of entertainment along with Snooki and, you know, SpongeBob mm-hmm. uh, and Michelle Yeoh is nowhere to be found. So they have, they haven't nailed it. 
And I think that's the problem is they, is that it's, it's like something that looks good on paper, Michelle Yeoh and espionage show. But I think they really haven't nailed the show or at least as of, you know, last year, you know, and I think, um, and, and I think they're still working on it. Yeah, I think they're kind of, you know, I think they're, they have narrowed it down and they have kind of come up with an idea now. Obviously, they went to a lot of work in season three to somewhat rehabilitate the character and to give her this grand send off with the Guardian of Forever. You know, they, they gave her two whole episodes of her own. Um, so I think they've now got a plan. Um, but I, you know, I don't think we're going to see that show until if we ever see it for two years. Oh, wow. What advice would you guys have to the people who might be in charge of that show for how to make a section 31? We've talked about what makes a section 31 episode successful. What would make a show successful? I'd make it different than the other shows for sure. I'd make it more, you know, action thriller espionage, like we've talked about. So in the line of some of those best things i'd have it operate in the gray areas but have Giorgio be on an arc where she's trying to do the right thing that she's not sinister and sadistic so she's not even jack bauer so she's not torturing people every episode or eating Um, people definitely not eating people or kelpians um and uh you know I'd, i'd surround her with it you know a cool fun crew interesting people um this gets you know speaking of the books bringing that back um one of the characters so there is a book set between seasons two and three right i forget no seasons one and two i'm sorry um and it's her first adventure with section 31 and one of the people she teams up with is emily dax right the younger oh cool yeah the gym Um, and so maybe Emily Dax could be part of this show or something. And that might be fun. That'd be great. Uh, so, um, but you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a difficult nut to crack because, you know, it's how do you do a show about someone that's a, you know, mass murderer and make them likable? <laughs> that's, that's the $6 million question, isn't it? That, that's going to be the, the difficult task. Um, that the writers have, um, whether it's a show that's about Section 31 or just about Georgia and wherever she ends up in the timeline. Um, I, I, I personally, I, I don't like the way that Discovery sort of uh, dealt with Section 31 um, as, as sort of a very out-in-the-open um, organization. Um, I don't feel that the best Section 31 episodes um, portray the organization in that light. Uh, and certainly if, if I, if I were, if I were, had any say in, in a Giorgio show, if it were to be centered around section 31, I'd want to really return to the, the cloak and dagger espionage um, uh, type roots. I, I wouldn't really want uh, them to get in, you know, fist fights um, and battles in space all the time. Um, because that's not how a, a good covert or organization operates. Um, but I realized that, you know, uh, you know, action sells, and that's one reason that you bring, uh, you retain Michelle Yeoh. 
Um, so, so perhaps, you know, maybe the solution was to really to go away from Section 31 and, and portray a sort of different organization within Starfleet that had emerged in, in the time of season two. And uh, but yeah, I, I think it would be difficult um, either way to to make Giorgio into an interesting character. Just on a side note, um, if you remember the Deep Space Nine documentary and their sort of notional um, first episode of season eight, they made Bashir the head of Section 31, um, which I thought was an interesting move, um, given you know how he got on soapbox so many times um, in the three episodes. That section 31 was featured um almost as if like if you if you put someone who's a good character who is redeemable who has a moral compass inside of this organization organization can they sort of turn that aircraft carrier around and start having it operate within uh at least morally acceptable bounds i just don't see that happening with george o in it <laughs> I know that uh, uh, Alexander Sadig is really intrigued by that idea. I interviewed him a couple weeks ago, and uh, he talked about taking, you know, when I asked him, where do you think Bashir is 20 years later, he brought that up. He's like, maybe he's head of Section 31, and he thought that was kind of a really cool idea. Okay, if they bring him back please make sure they give him more to do than they did on Game of Thrones. Because i just been re-watching it. And when he's first on, I'm like, this is awesome. Dr. Bashir's on Game of Thrones. Oh, and he's dead. <laughs> he just hangs out in a chair and uh -huh. tries, tries to stop wars and gets stabbed, I remember. Yep, that's a, you You remember correctly, sir. No, I, I, that's a really, a really good... Uh, I, I like that you brought that up, um, Tony. See, see, your your contribution to this podcast is immense when it comes to news or interviews, but also also your opinions on the Star Trek universe. I just I also wanted to say you were talking about action, and there's ways to do espionage stories and action. Obviously, I mean, Homeland is a great example. There's always a lot of tension and action, but some great spycraft and and stuff in that show and even shows like berlin station you could get some action so there's, there's way when i say it should be action i'm not saying people punching each other all the time mm. uh, yeah yeah I, I just worry that's the direction it might go down given that you have michelle yo as the lead um and you just you really want to tap into the physicality and just sheer badassness that she can bring to bring to any show I think her last two episodes, she showed, I think they should have done it in one episode, but uh, she showed a lot of acting chops in those two. And they really gave her stuff to do that wasn't just mustache twirling and wasn't just punching and kicking, which she's good at, obviously. Um, so she can do it. She has range. And I think they've got all the pieces there. I like the writers or the showrunners, Bowie and Erica. Maybe they do a limited series. They try not to bite off too much. I have an open mind, but I, I, I'm I'm kind of glad Strange New Worlds moved ahead of the line and jumped in as the next show for Star Trek. Yeah, I, I and, and just to, to clarify, you know, I I I love Michelle Yeoh, and uh, I, I I definitely have no no questions about about her acting ability. 
Um, I think it, it more has to do with the direction that the character of Giorgio has gone. And as you said earlier, you know, can you get audiences to really jump on with a mass murderer? You know, has she been redeemed enough? And I know you, you and Laurie have talked about this on, on, on the All Access uh, podcast in your reviews of the individual episodes. Um, you know, personally, I, I don't think she's been redeemed enough. Um, and and it's, it's going to be a difficult sell. She's not redeemed. The question is, is she redeemable? Hmm. And I would say they definitely didn't redeem her, even though there's moments where they kind of pretended she was. But I think they have successfully moved her from just um, this one-dimensional villain, this Corella DeVille, to a redeemable character with some nuance. And uh, so that's a good start. I, I mean, imagine if they tried to launch the Section 31 show after season two of Discovery. They just took that version of Giorgio that we saw in those last episodes and tried to launch a show around that character versus where they brought her by episode 10 when she left. Um, and I think they actually did a lot of good work in season three on the character. To, I, I think it would have been impo- literally just impossible to have that character from season two head up a show. Now I think they've at least moved it into the realm of possibility. Agreed. Well, any closing thoughts, gentlemen, on our favorite covert action team in the galaxy? Well, that's got to be Worf and Jadzia, right? In their black outfits. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. That's right. Not quite good enough because they decided to uh, abandon. That actually was. They would fail the psychological profile. Yeah, we, we didn't talk about extreme measures enough, you know, when, when they go inside of Sloan's mind to to uh, Sloan's dying mind to go ahead and get the, um, I guess, the the uh, molecular uh, formula for what the virus is that Section 31 unleashed um, on the founders. Um, but the episode right after that, I think, no, actually, it was after Inter Arma um, was Penumbra. Um, where you do have that episode where <laughs> Worf and Jed Zia are on a mission together um, to go ahead. And I think this is interesting, too, because it, it deals with the other side of Starfleet intelligence that, you know, there are assets out there. You know, it's not Section 31 running everything. You sure. know, there was there was a Cardassian um, spy that they had to go in and extract. And Jed Zia, I think, gets gets uh, wounded and Worf decides to abandon the mission, um, which was, I think, a really great episode and a great story, but it has a little bit more going on um, with it. Um, you know, and of course, Starfleet Intelligence has been there. We talked about, you know, um, the Enterprise incident. Um, they were first referenced in that episode. Um, and through every series, uh, Starfleet Intelligence has been um, talked about. Um, I think probably not dealt with as much as in Deep Space Nine, but you do have some good, really, like undercover, covert action um, type episodes. I think season, season seven TNG, where Rolaren goes undercover um, in uh, the Maquis. And, uh, you know, I, I, really, I really like the way a lot of that is done because we're because we are looking at this through the lens of the 24th century and through 
the Federation's values and Starfleet's values. And I think one has to be pragmatic and say, like, yeah, you know, Starfleet needs to collect intelligence on its enemies. Uh, Starfleet might need to do covert action, but the question is, the moral question is, how much is too much, you know? Um, do you go ahead and wipe out the founders just to win a war? You know, that's very debatable. And I think that's an interesting thing that the fan base can go ahead and take up and, and have really good arguments and discussions uh, about, about what the Federation should be. You know, not like, well, oh, well, this doesn't jive with Roddenberry or anything like that. Um, it, it's really just sort of about what should the Federation be, since, you know, I think a lot of us Star Trek fans look to the Federation as this sort of utopian version of the future that we all would love to live in. Um, but there is this sort of gray underbelly that you have to have to... I'm curious as to whether Section 31 exists in the 32nd century, because, of course, one of our running theories is that Kovic is the head of Section 31. Um, you know, and, and it's the Federation has really got its back up against the wall in the 32nd century in Discovery Season 3 and still into Season 4. It's not really fixed yet. So what are they willing to do? What compromises is this? you know, more humbled federation, you know, what have they done in the hundred years since the burn and what are they still willing to do? So I think we could see, even if they don't use the word section 31, we, we can still see these kinds of questioning of the federation's ideals um, in Star Trek discovery. I, I think I like that idea a lot, Tony. Um, I, I think Kovic has, has been a very fascinating and, and enigmatic character. Um, and you just, every time you see him on screen, you want to know more. Um, just he's, 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 he's so interesting. And I think Sloan had a lot of the same qualities, um, although it was a little bit more in the open as to what he was. Um, but I, I would really love to see Discovery playing around with sort of uh, the nebulous nature of, of Section 31, if it still exists, or maybe another organization that has to uh, protect Starfleet and the Federation in very difficult times. In which case, it probably wouldn't need to be as covert. It would probably be much more overt, right, if, if people are in a much trickier situation. I mean, they've only got only got the one space station right so it's kind of hard to it's like have you guys noticed that there's a whole floor of the station none of us can get into it's like oh don't worry about that <laughs> oh that that's all um that's uh storage it's storage you know so if if section 31's there everyone probably could see them like oh hey look there's the um i mean what there was a tiny clue by the way in that uh in the episode where they're all being interrogated uh kovic had different people working for him so everyone was wearing a certain uniform yeah with all the interrogators but Kovic's two holographic ter interrogators were wearing a different uniform um and so it implied that they were at least different there he was doing something different and that they were something different um but it could just be starfleet intelligence and the other ones were just um just regular officers so who knows or, or holographic who knows? Because they're all holograms, so hard to tell. But there is at least one clue that he's Section Thirty One. 
Well, I do like the mystery surrounding him, and I'll be very interested to to find out um, what his story really is. Um, or if they want to keep teasing us with it, I'm perfectly fine with that, too. Yeah, I, I go back and forth. I kind of like the idea that he just shows up and does something weird and mysterious and leaves, and we never know what his deal is. Um, I think that's kind of fun, too. Yeah, to, to, to circle back around to what we initially talked about, I thought that that's what made Sloane so interesting. And even in the last episode that we saw him, uh, you know, that we see his wife, we see, uh, we never we never really know what we can trust. The first episode is in a, is in a holodeck. Um, you know, the only time we really see Sloane is, is a few times in Bashir's quarters on that holodeck throughout the entire episode of Into Arma. Um, and then when he shows up on Deep Space Nine, because Bashir lures him there, everything else where you really get the meat of what Section 31 could be is an absolute mystery. And and to me, just to sort of wrap it up, um, that that's one thing beyond the, the commentary and the, the debate that it generates. That one thing, that's one thing to me that makes Section 31 so interesting. The fact that it is undefined and very nebulous as an organization like that should be maybe section 31 was manifested through a holodeck malfunction while julian was in there and it's kind of like a tyler durden fight club situation where he is sloan sloan is an alter ego of him a mirror of him created by the holodeck what do you think? Oh goodness, no! <laughs> but it, because because Jordy said once, create an enemy for who is worthy enough of Doctor Bashir, and the holodeck magically created Section Thirty One. Exactly. Perfect. There you go. That's that makes more sense than anything I've heard all week. <laughs> okay, I think I think we've gone far enough down the rabbit hole. Absolutely, we have. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks everybody. Thanks for coming with us episode 93 of the shuttle pod well what do you think about section 31 what were your, are your hopes for a section 31 series if they bring back section 31 series should they bring back nick lacarno instead of tom paris let us know in the <laughs> comment section below and follow us sorry that's my running gag for 2021 so far and let us know on our various social media channels and we will see you on episode 94 thanks for listening everybody have a good one thanks Thanks for listening, and thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, Tony. Come back anytime. Thanks, Tony.